We're going to be continuing in 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 19. And uh, in July of 1721, two friends were walking down the road in London. They had spent the day together. Their names were Richard Grantham and Norton Fitzgerald. These two guys were friends from their college days. They were both Irishmen who had gone to college together in Dublin. Uh, They spent the day together in July of 1721. They ate lunch together. Uh, Then they went for a swim in Chelsea. Then they had supper together. And after supper, they began to walk throughout London. And as they began to walk throughout London, uh, they got into a philosophical discussion. Uh, Some of the accounts of their conversations say that they began to argue over the spelling of a Greek word. And the argument got more and more heated. Here's what one newspaper account says. When supper was ended... They walked about the fountain where starting a philosophical discussion of a very dubious nature and not agreeing in the decision of it, after having spent their stock of arguments on each side, they supported themselves with positive affirmations and denials. Uh, That's an old-timey way of simply saying they ran out of arguments and so they just began to say, yes it is, no it isn't, it's a mu, it's a new, it's an epsilon and they got more and more heated. This was followed by nonsense, fool, blockhead, rascal, upon which they stepped down, drew their swords and in less than two minutes time Mr. Fitzgerald received six desperate wounds of which he died at three of the clock the next morning. Uh, Richard Grantham was also seriously wounded, although he did not die. He went to trial for manslaughter, and his punishment was being branded on his hand. I don't know what they branded there. Uh, But as I read this, I couldn't help but think, thank goodness Facebook doesn't have a stab button, right? Because the course of their argument sounds like every Facebook debate we've ever seen. It begins with a philosophical argument over some small point, and it escalates, and people run out of intellectual arguments. So they start calling names and reaffirming their own position, and it escalates to the point sometimes where people hit the unfriend button. I no longer want to know you, talk to you, or be a part of your life. Uh, As I read that story, I couldn't help but think that philosophical discussions and arguments about matters of minor importance, all of that's nothing new. We are people who love to argue. This tendency is older than you and me. Uh, It goes back farther than 300 years. It goes back as long as there have been people, people have liked to debate and argue, sometimes with tragic consequences Think of Cain and Abel if you want to consider how long people have engaged in arguments and angry discussion. It doesn't take much to begin an argument, particularly in this day and age. Facebook facilitates the process quite nicely. Uh, One day a few years ago, I inadvertently started an argument on Facebook about oatmeal raisin cookies simply by insisting upon what is obvious truth, that they're evil and deceptive, right? And so uh, other people began to jump in and defend oatmeal raisin cookies, and some people hated them, and there was this discussion going on. 
Now we could blame Facebook, but the reality is that what really is at the root often of these types of discussions is simply our pride, our belief that we know everything, a belief that we are always correct, and a willingness to jump into the fray. As, as we read the book of 2 Timothy this week, we will see that Paul understands that for the body of Christ, there is a real danger in becoming overly immersed in debates about secondary matters. If you remember the flow of the book of 2 Timothy up to this point, the primary idea of the book of 2 Timothy is that Timothy is called to make disciples. That is, he's called to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again so all who trust in Jesus can have eternal life. Timothy is supposed to take that message and hand it on to faithful men who will hand it on to faithful men and so on until Jesus returns. His task is discipleship. And here in this section of the passage, what Paul warns against is the tendency that we all have to engage in debates about matters of secondary importance, because the gospel is of primary importance. So that if you and I spend our days insisting on our way and creating division in the body of Christ about issues where the scripture is unclear or about issues that are not of central importance, then we run the risk of allowing what Paul will call worthless words, words of no value. We run the risk of those types of words spreading like a disease in the body of Christ, and leading to the destruction even of God's people, the confusion of those who listen, and in fact, even to heresy in the body of Christ, as we'll see in 2 Timothy chapter 2. As I read this passage, I really cannot think of a more relevant passage for this day and age among the people of God, because it it does not take much for us to divide over theological issues, for us to divide over political beliefs, for us to divide over our beliefs about immigration or race or social policy or economics or predestination or you name it, we will find a reason to engage in debates and arguments on matters of secondary importance. And what the Scripture tells us is not that those issues are of no value, ultimately, but the way that we discuss those issues always ought to be rooted in the Word of God and always ought to be uh, discussed with an understanding that what is primary is that we as believers in Jesus Christ all stand united in the gospel of Jesus Christ as our primary belief and our primary task is to make disciples. And so Paul will say, if you and I are dividing the body of Christ over matters of secondary importance, then we are introducing a sickness into God's people that will spread like a cancer and lead to destruction. And the antidote to that sickness is to be rooted in the Word of God. So as we walk through 2 Timothy chapter 2, The main point is this, worthless words are a sickness. What Paul will call wrangling over words, it's a sickness. He likens it to gangrene or perhaps cancer 
is one way to translate that. But God's word is the cure. That if you want to avoid wrangling over matters of secondary importance, the answer is to ground your life in the word of God. The answer is to dig in eagerly to the word of God, study it, know it, apply it, so that the spirit of God transforms us into people who know what is important, into people who understand how to discuss even those matters of secondary importance in a way that doesn't lead to division. Is your life rooted in the Word of God? Or when one of these secondary issues comes up, do you immediately defend your position based on your own background, your opinion, the latest statistics, CNN or Fox or whatever it may be, your favorite blogger? Or is your life rooted in the Word of God? That's where Paul is going to take us this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He begins with this concept that worthless words are a sickness. Look at verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the years. Now, remind them of these things is where he begins. If you remember last week, Paul had reminded Timothy that if he stands firm in the gospel, if he continues in his faith in Jesus Christ to the very end, if he endures, there's going to be a reward. If Timothy will be faithful to the task of discipleship, he will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so Paul says, look, Timothy, remind your church of these things that those who are faithful to the task of discipleship and the gospel will receive a reward. And then he issues a warning. He says, solemnly charge them. Tell them very seriously, in other words. Don't wrangle about words. Solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. In other words, arguing about issues of secondary importance and speculations is not only pointless, but it's destructive for those who hear. Now, I grew up in a family that loves to debate. Maybe some of you have that type of background. I remember vividly one of the first times my wife Shannon and I had lunch with my parents. And at the time, Shannon was an English teacher for junior high. And while we were eating, I don't know what brought it up, but my dad tossed out a statement that he believed that sentence diagramming was a useless waste of time. And I saw the look on Shannon's face that said, oh no, you're wrong. And I said to her, Shannon, tell him why he's wrong. And she said, you mean you want me to argue with your father? Now, the crazy thing is my dad said, yes, argue with me. And they had a debate about sentence diagramming. Now, the reason I share that is because that's the background in which I grew up because uh, my dad had a strong value in us learning critical thinking skills, which is good, right? But the downside of that can be that any matter becomes one for vigorous and even vicious debate if we're not careful. And debate that can lead to division. Paul recognized that the tendency among people is to go that direction if that tendency is left unchecked, and it can lead to destruction where we entrench into camps based on issues where we're simply speculating. Uh, The rabbis loved to talk about 
speculative matters from the law. And so you see this type of warning all throughout, particularly the pastoral epistles. Look at the book of Titus. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. In 1 Timothy, he says, instruct certain men. He doesn't have to say who they are because everybody kind of knows. Instruct these guys not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God. So here's what the rabbis loved to do. Uh, Keep in mind, the rabbis, they had to get up in front of a congregation in the synagogue, and they had to teach through the Bible. And part of what they had to teach were the genealogy sections. So if you read 1 Chronicles, for example, there are lists of names. And just like us, I imagine the rabbis found it boring to read and to teach. And so what they would do is they would reach into those genealogies and they'd just pull out a name. They'd go, there's this guy, Ishbaz, and they'd make up a story about him. And that story would have a moral, and that story would have all of these details. And then not only would they make up stories, they'd begin to debate uh, the moral of the stories that they made up. And that debate would lead into speculation and division among the people. And that tendency carried into the church. And Paul says, cut it out. And the reason is because all it does is waste time and lead to the confusion of those who are listening. It leads people away from God. People get confused. And people get dismayed when they hear the body of Christ or see the body of Christ arguing and debating viciously about matters of secondary importance. It leads people away from hearing the truth of the gospel. When I was an intern at Grace right after I graduated college, one day, I went on to the A&M campus with a few of our students to share the gospel with other students, to tell them about the life they could find in Jesus Christ. But as a couple of our students were sharing the gospel, there was another young man whose mission in life was to promote his view of predestination. And so he came up to these students who were sharing the gospel with a non-Christian student and began to argue with them about election and predestination And Romans 9, to the point that the person they were sharing the gospel with just drifted away. That's what Paul is afraid of. He says, Timothy, remind them not to wrangle over words. And he'll go on. Look with me at verses 16 to 18. We'll come back to 15 in a few minutes. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene or cancer. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows who are His, and everyone who who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. He says, cut it out. Here's what was going on. These guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, began a conversation about end times, 
right? Which is a valuable discussion. In fact, uh, we are likely in the next year or two to talk about Revelation and end times. But as they talked about it, they began to speculate wildly beyond what the Scripture says. And so they started setting dates and they started talking about the resurrection and the kingdom of God. And they came to a conclusion based on their speculation that the resurrection had already happened. That there was no future hope for the people of God who trusted in Jesus Christ because, oops, you missed it. And their speculation untethered them from the word of God and actually led to a heresy that was damaging the church. When I was growing up, it was very fashionable in certain circles to write books about end times and people would debate about the dates that various events were going to occur. And they would look, for example, there were entire books written about how the Soviet Union was going to be at the center of the end times. And then they had to write a whole new book when the Soviet Union fell apart. All of this endless speculation about matters of secondary importance. I have been in Bible studies where every discussion about a passage of Scripture leads us down the rabbit trail of predestination. There's always one or two. Maybe it's you. And every conversation has to go back to that point and we go down and down in a spiral to where we don't have any more answers. All right, and, and don't hear me wrong talking about election, talking about God's sovereignty. Those matters are covered in Scripture. The danger is when we begin to speculate beyond what the Scripture has said, and then we entrench into camps on the left and the right and say, my perspective is right and your perspective is wrong, and maybe, maybe, maybe you're not even a Christian if you hold something different on the matter of election. Let me offer a few more examples. Uh, When I was in college Students began to entrench into camps over dating versus courtship. What does the Bible say about going out on dates versus uh, courting under the uh, influence of the parents and the permission of the parents? Here's what the Bible says about that. Nothing. Right? The Bible doesn't talk about dating as we date. Now, does the Bible offer parameters about sexual purity and about marriage? Absolutely. But what would happen is students would read their favorite book and listen to their favorite tape and then entrench into camps. I've seen it happen over the years over what school you send your kids to. Whether you rock your kids to sleep or let them cry, right? From First Baby Town 319, right? It's not in the Scripture. And we can talk about principles and we can talk about what we believe and we can talk about convictions, but the reality is, Paul says, when you begin to wrangle over words to the point that you are dividing the body of Christ, you're leading to the destruction of the hearers. One more. Many years ago, I led worship at a church when I was in seminary, and the drummer in our band was telling me that uh, one day he had finished his worship set and he said a man came up from the congregation and began to ask me he said he began to ask me about the drums how long have you played the drums where'd you learn to play the drums and all of these questions about the drums and then he said he looked straight at me and he said you know that that's satan's instrument and he just walked away and that was the end of the conversation And we laugh, but the reality is there have been churches divided in two 
over whether drums are an acceptable instrument to God or whether they are Satan's bongos. Is that how we want to proceed as men and women in the body of Christ? The ugliest one, of course, this year is our political beliefs, isn't it? We entrench, we divide, and perhaps we see ourselves writing or hear ourselves saying things like this, how could you be a Christian and vote for A or B? Any Christian who votes for A and B is suspect or a fool. And we toss out words of anger and hatred and division toward brothers and sisters in Christ for whom Jesus died and rose again. Paul says, avoid those types of wrangling over words because it leads to destruction, particularly when it is untethered from the Scripture. And those types of arguments spread, he says, like gangrene. We underestimate how susceptible we are to the emotions and thoughts and feelings of other people. Many years ago, when I was in college at an A&M versus Texas game, yes, in our field, I remember it was uh, the first time in several years that Texas won the game. I know, it was the worst day for many of us. And, and, and the Texas fans jumped up in our field and they began to cheer and some of the students began to run onto Kyle Field and our students began to get angry. And what I saw was that there were other students, other Aggie students who began to rush the field and they began to beat the students from Texas who were on Kyle Field. And I don't mean just pull them off. I mean push them on the ground, punch them, kick them, beat them. And I remember sitting in the stands, and I, I honestly, as I saw it, here's uh, what, I, what I heard and saw is that the entire stadium began to cheer for the students who were beating the other students. Get them, yeah, and I began to feel it. I'm not a violent person by nature, but I began to cheer and clap and applaud. Get them. And as we walked away, I was with one of my roommates, and I, I said, I'm so glad they put those guys in their place. And he said, is that really what we want to cheer for? is people beating and kicking and maiming other people over the grass on a football field. And all of a sudden I realized what had happened to me is what Paul describes is that the emotions and the opinions and the feelings of the crowd had overtaken me and spread like a cancer. And he says what happens is when we begin to debate, when we begin to entrench, when we begin to argue, some people will line up on side A, some people will line up on side B, and side A begins to shout at side B, and before we know it, we have divided into camps in an unhealthy way. Our church has convictions on issues like sovereignty of God and predestination and end times and dispensationalism and all of those matters. But I want to be clear. We do not use those issues as a reason or a way to lob attacks at our brothers and sisters in Christ who believe differently on matters of secondary importance. There is a core to the Christian faith. Matters like the deity of Jesus Christ and the Trinity and the bodily resurrection of Jesus and salvation by grace through faith on which we Hold matters in common. 
and we can discuss from the Scripture other matters, but we keep what is primary, primary, and what is secondary, secondary, so we do not devolve into wrangling over words that leads to the destruction of the hearers. That's what Paul warned Timothy and the church against. Several years ago, when I was the college pastor, I would notice that uh, students, college students, would enter A&M or Blinn, and they'd come to our church, and it was interesting, uh, they already had a well-defined theological position on the issue of Calvinism versus Arminianism. So they would come in and they would say, I am a five-point Calvinist. And you would begin to ask questions, and they'd say, well, where do you derive that belief from? And rarely was that belief derived from the Word of God. It was derived from their favorite popular blogger or podcaster. And they literally had not read God's Word, but they already entrenched into a position and were convinced that the other position was not only wrong but suspect before God. So what Paul will say is that the antidote to that type of division is actually quite simple. Difficult to do, but quite simple. It's the Word of God. These worthless words spread like a cancer. They are a sickness, but the Word of God is the cure. Look at verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. That word, be diligent, has the idea of being zealous, or eager. He says, be zealous or eager to get into the Word and to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Incidentally, if any of you send your kids to Awana, uh, the Awana comes from this passage, approved workmen are not ashamed. That's what it stands for. And they teach the kids the Word of God. And what Paul is saying is, Timothy, be eager, be zealous to get into the Scripture. Because, Timothy, God is going to hold you accountable for how faithfully you understand and proclaim the Word. Because it's right here for you to read and to study. How zealously do we study the Word of God as an antidote to the type of worthless words that lead to division? My guess is that most people in this room have some subject on which you feel zealous to learn. There are probably some subjects where facts just come easily to your mind and they stick there. About a week ago, we were watching the Aggie game with some friends and uh, the man that we were watching it with began to uh, recite statistics about the players and about the team and he understood all of the plays that were being run, not only about our team, but about the other team. Not only about those two teams, but about all the teams in the SEC. And even the professional teams that were playing later in the, in the weekend. And I said, wow, that is really impressive that all of that information is just up there in your mind. And he said, yeah, I just have always loved to learn this. And he said, I haven't even really tried to stick that stuff in my brain. It just sticks in there. And then he kind of looked down and he said, I wish I knew the Bible that well. Uh, and, and we kind of chuckled. It was a joke, but, but I couldn't help but think uh, that's convicting to me. Because I can remember as a young man, my area of zealous study was music. And so I I would listen to CDs or before that cassette tapes. 
And as I listened, I would open up the liner notes, which you can't really find anymore. And I would read the lyrics, and I would read the songwriters, and I would read the musicians, and it all stuck in my head so that there was a period of time with certain types of music that you could quiz me. And I could tell you who played bass or mandolin and who wrote this song for all of these different albums, and it just stuck in my head. And I thought, that is being a zealous student of a subject that I cared about. What Paul says here is be a zealous student of the Word of God. I had a friend in college. His name was Tim. And I'll never forget that Tim was one of these guys that knew the Scripture backward and forward. You could ask him about any book in the Old or New Testament and what was in it and when it was written and who wrote it and all of the details, and he could rattle it off. One of our favorite games to play with Tim is we would open the Bible to some random prophetic passage in the Old Testament and read a couple of verses and see how closely Tim could identify where it came from. And he was about 80% accurate. And he could even describe the preceding context and the following context. He was no older than I was. But he had zealously studied the Word of God. You know what I noticed about Tim, was he was also one of the most grounded, wisest young men among my circle of friends. Paul says, Timothy, the antidote to wild speculation, to untethered discussion that leads to division, is to zealously pursue the Word of God, to know it well, to study it faithfully, A few years ago, I simply decided that during my time with the Lord each day, what I was going to do was not at that stage invest more time in detailed study of the Scripture. The reason was because uh, during my sermon prep, I do a lot of detailed study. But what I decided to do was simply to read, to open the Scripture and just read it straight through, and then read it straight through again. And here's what I found was not only as I read did themes and ideas and verses stick to my brain more than I expected that they would, but what I read began to shape what I thought, how I felt about interactions with my wife or my kids or this congregation or the task that God has called me to as a minister. Because often absorbing and praying and thinking about God's Word has an effect that we don't even anticipate because the Spirit of God begins to move. So Paul says, Timothy, present yourself to God as an approved workman who does not need to be ashamed. Dive into it deeply and zealously and seek to interpret it accurately. He says, accurately handling the word of truth, or literally rightly dividing it, understanding what it says, understanding the context of verses so that we don't simply pull a verse out of its context and toss it into an argument like a hand grenade. But we know what the Scripture has to say in its fullness. And the only way for us to do that is to zealously, diligently study and allow the Spirit of God to impress it upon our minds and our hearts. Do our lives reflect that type of study of the Scripture? Maybe that you are 
sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I would love to read and study and understand God's Word, but I've tried and it's difficult. And it is. And, and I think Paul would say, keep trying. Keep pursuing. It may be also that, that you kind of need a pattern or a plan or a way to go about it. Let me just offer a few thoughts. If you say, I want to ground my life in the Word of God, how do I study it? What do I do? Let me offer a few thoughts about how to study the Word of God. First and foremost, pray, which should seem like an obvious thing, but we forget all too often. Come before the Lord and ask for His wisdom. Ask for His understanding, because the Word of God is a supernatural book. And so we need a supernatural understanding from the Spirit to know what it says and how to apply it. All right, observe it thoroughly. Read it carefully. Read the context. Quite often we're tempted to take a verse right out of its context and try to stick it on a situation where it does not fit. And in our modern culture, one of the most uh, recognizable examples would be Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That passage was not written right before Paul played a football game. The passage is about contentment, about learning to be content in whatever circumstances, whether I have a lot, whether I have a little, and yes, whether I win the game or not. And so we read the context, we observe it thoroughly, we observe it carefully. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, I had a professor, Howard Hendricks, and at the beginning of every semester, he had an assignment for the brand new students. He would say, I want you to go to Acts 1.8, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And he would say, go to that passage, and I want you to write down 25 observations from that passage. And so we would all go away and we racked our brains and we spent all evening, hours, and we wrote down 25. Half of them were things like there's a period at the end of this sentence, right? And we'd hand it in. And then he came back the next class period. He said, how did it go? And we were tired. And he goes, now go home and do 25 more. And we began to weep, (laughs) at least inside so we go back and do 25 more, and he comes and he says, the, the, the record here is 613 or something along those lines. But you know what happened as we observed it? We couldn't help but notice there was a context to it. And in fact, he had to study the context. And you know what else happened? I just recited that passage from memory, and I never made an intentional effort to memorize it. It just stuck in my head as I observed it and observed it and observed it. So we observe thoroughly and allow it to soak in. We seek to interpret it carefully, ask questions of the text, compare one translation to another, learn about the meanings of words. I'm going to give a few resources in a few moments for interpretation. Look at the context, consider the culture and what was going on when a passage was written, interpret it carefully, and then apply it faithfully so that we don't fill our brains with knowledge, but fail to apply. So that we understand in those moments when we're tempted to get untethered and drift off into speculation, 
We know what the scripture says about this issue, and we apply it appropriately. Interesting, in John 14, Jesus talking to his disciples said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. I love this. Jesus says, if you do what the Scripture says, you know what's going to happen. You're going to build a deeper relationship of love between you and God. But not only that, God's going to tell you more stuff. If you want to understand the Scripture well, study it and then apply it, and study it and then apply it. And as our hearts are softened toward the things of God, God reveals to us more about himself, more of what he wants us to do, provides us with deeper wisdom and insight into who he is so that in those moments when we don't know the answer to a question, we don't have to pull out our metaphorical sword and start hacking at our enemies. But we're grounded in the word of God because we've studied it, sought to understand it, and sought to be obedient to what God has called us to do. Let me offer a few resources, if you would like, just to get started. Uh, Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks, whom I mentioned a few moments ago. Just a basic understanding of how to study the Scripture. Uh, observing, interpreting, applying it. Uh, basic Bible interpretation by Roy Zook goes a little bit more in detail. If you're interested in looking at things like the grammar and the cultural context, and those types of issues surrounding the Scripture. And then I realize this is a long web address. This will be on our website in a couple of days. But on our website, we also have a Bible study methods packet that leads you through this process. So if you pick up one of our studies on 2 Timothy, for example, or Ephesians, you know the methodology to study the Scripture well, to ground yourself in the Word of God. So, worthless words are a sickness. The Word of God is a cure. And the question is, will you and I ground our lives in the Word of God? As I said at the beginning, I cannot think of a more relevant passage for where we are as a nation and as a people of God. Because I, I truly believe that the Spirit of God among His people is calling for men and women who will shun the foolishness of the arguments of this world, who will shun dividing up the body of Christ on matters of secondary importance, but instead will say, I want to know God's Word, root myself in God's Word, and respond to every matter, every trend, every news event from the perspective of the Scripture. And at times that may mean not responding at all. At other times it may mean responding carefully. At times it may mean responding passionately. But often what we see in our world and our culture, even among Christians, is we we don't know the difference. We don't know when to respond in which way. We don't know what to say because we have not filled our minds and hearts with the truth of God's Word. But instead, we have been blown around by every passing wind. And so Paul zealously encourages Timothy. Timothy, ground yourself in God's Word to be able to be that kind of faithful teacher, the kind of man or woman who will hold forth the light of Jesus Christ in a world that is just drifting on the wind. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we are grateful for your word and convicted by your word. I pray that we would not be people who wrangle over words and divide up and entrench over matters of secondary importance, but we would remember those matters of primary importance, most centrally the gospel. Father, if there are any in this room this morning who do not know you through your son, Jesus Christ, I pray they would trust in you, that Jesus died for their sin, that Jesus rose again, and all who have faith in Jesus can have eternal life. And I pray for those of us who know you through him, that we would make the good news the very heart of who we are and the very center of our lives so that we will not drift into speculation that leads to the ruin of the hearers so that we will not depart into heresy because we think we know more than you. Teach us to be humble. Forgive us when we've been proud and empower us to root our lives in the word of God. We thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.